Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Well, it's been a truly tumultuous week, even by the elevated standards of farce we've come to expect in British politics. This Monday saw a vote of confidence called in and ultimately defeated by Boris Johnson. But it was, to use the kind of classical illusion he's so fond of, a pyrrhic victory. 40% of the PM's own MPs voted against him in what can only be described as a huge blow to his authority. To discuss some of the fallout from that vote and the ensuing Tory policy blitz, we're very pleased to welcome Will Atkinson for his podcast debut. Uh, Will's been a contributor to the site for some time and was recently appointed assistant editor at Conservative Home, where he writes about all things, well, conservative, I guess you'd say. Will, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you with us. Um, I'm very glad to be on, John. Thank you. We're also joined, as ever, by our very capable deputy editor, Alice Denby. Alice, hello. Hello. Right, we will kick off the only place we can kick off, at the start of the week, on Monday, 8am, literally just recovering from our weekends, and Graham Brady comes out and announces there will finally be a post-Platinum Jubilee, uh, no confidence or confidence vote, um, in the Prime Minister. I mean, how surprised were we when this actually, when that happened? It's been kind of roiling along for quite a long time. Well, I wasn't wholly surprised, as you say, because we've had reports of letters going in for quite a while now. Um, and we knew this was probably coming at some point. The problem, of course, that unlike in 2018 with Mrs May, um, this wasn't coordinated by MPs. So it was very much MPs' individual decisions to send letters in. Um, and so the timing was uh, slightly random in that respect. Um, I was more annoyed than surprised at the exact timing of it because I had just um, put the finishing touches to that morning's Conservative Home newsletter um, available um, if you want to sign up, any listeners. Yeah, please do sign um, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I'd, I'd reported all of these various headlines um, in various different newspapers saying that they might be a vote of confidence. And then, of course, as soon as Sir Graham announced it, I had to tear all that up um, and start again. Um, but yes, I don't think the timing was wholly surprising. Um, and I think one of the problems, as I say, is the lack of coordination amongst those MPs trying to get the Prime Minister out. If they were trying to um, remove the Prime Minister, if inflicting maximum damage was their aim, um, probably waiting until after the Platinum Jubilee was not the best look, not only because um, they picked the same day as a tube strike, um, so it wasn't necessarily easy for everybody to get in, um, or the fact that quite a large portion, I imagine, were a bit hungover, um, but more importantly, because on June 23rd, we've got two by-elections, one in Wakefield in the so-called Red Wall, and one in Tiverton and Honiton in the so-called Blue Wall. Um, and if, as expected, the uh, party loses both of those by quite substantial margins, 
then I would imagine if you were a plotter, that would be a much better time to try and force the Prime Minister out. Um, otherwise, now um, he is safe from another leadership, uh, no, sorry, another leadership challenge, another vote of um, confidence or confidence um, until um, another year, unless they change the rules. And the problem that the plotters have is that aside from the um, inquiry into parliamentary standards, um, which we know to expect in rather September or October, there isn't actually a specific um, electoral test for the Prime Minister's popularity um, until next year's local elections. And now it's much easier to remove Mrs May or at least threaten to hold another vote in her back in 2019 um, because she just lost the European elections by quite a staggering amount. Remember, the sort of Conservative Party's worst ever electoral performance, um, less than 10% of the votes coming fifth, etc., etc., in European elections that we weren't supposed to have um, and the plotters won't have that this time around. I, I thought um, the timing was quite funny coming straight after a platinum jubilee. It's like a jubilee, try to get rid of your prime minister, it's like Tory Christmas. <laughs> but I, I think you wrote a really good article for us this week about uh, you, Tories have this reputation for being sort of ruthless masters of regicide. I think it's a William Hague quote, isn't it? That the Tory party is an absolute monarchy enlivened by occasional bouts of regicide, something like that. But like many of their attempts, this one wasn't much of a success. Uh, yes, um, there is, sort of, I, I guess, no group in either um, political, social or just human history in general um, who say like to talk up their talent at regicide, but have proved so rubbish at it in practice um, than Conservative MPs. I think it's a combination of, sort of various party uh, myths and folklore, such as the uh, painful defenestration of uh, Mrs Thatcher, which still rankles with many a Tory now, uh, but also um, the pervasive influence of things like House of Cards um, have convinced them that they are these masters of regicide, which they don't actually prove to be. Um, in practice. But yes, this is the point I made in my article, and I, and I looked through um, recent Conservative leaders, and I pointed out actually um, most went after losing um, a substantial vote or a referendum. Um, for example, David Cameron, Theresa May, as I previously said, um, but also um, John Major, for example. There was the Back Me or Sack Me um, event in 1995 where he resigned the leadership, and only John Redwood actually had the uh, nads to challenge him. Um, and he kept going until That's 1997. Technical term. Technical <laughs> term, technical term indeed. Um, and he kept going until 1997, where he led the party to an obvious um, and very painful landslide defeat. Of course, the exception to this rule um, is Ian Duncan Smith in 2003. Um, but because of the unique way that Conservative leadership elections um, are structured, uh, it meant that a final two had been whittled down to between him and Kenneth Clark in 2001. And Kenneth Clark had the support for a majority of MPs, uh, or at least the uh, largest number of MPs, and was Ian Duncan Smith. Um, came second amongst the MPs. So he never actually had most MPs supporting him. So his leadership was always um, rather temporary in, in that sense. Um, and as a consequence, the broader point I want to make is that Tory MPs like to talk up their ability at regicide, but actually they need to get better if they're going to um, actually try and remove a prime minister, change the direction of government, of actually coordinating and getting rid of them. Otherwise, um, we could end up in a, in a sort of position where you end up with a prime minister who can't actually command enough support um, from their MPs to actually deliver any form of legislative agenda, whatever that agenda um, is. And that's not good for not just the Conservative Party, but for democracy in general. On the other hand, though, you don't want them to get too good at it, or we end up in a situation like the Liberal Party in Australia, where as soon as you know, a prime minister's um, been coming second in about 30-odd polls, they suggest that it's time to get rid of them. Um, and again, that's not particularly good for democracy either. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier that the big problem for the plotters, there's two problems. One is the plotters is a very nebulous group. We don't really know who they are. There are suggestions of sort of a, a team hunt gathering and coordinating things. But, you know, they always like to say the Tories are a sophisticated slash duplicitous electorate. So with a secret ballot, it's quite 
difficult. The other problem is that they're again you mentioned is that they don't really have a mechanism to actually do it like the by-elections might go badly but then what do they do they have to kind of get the 1922 committee to change the rules then have another vote so it's all quite long-winded so let's talk a bit about why the vote took place i mean alice how much do you think of this is to do with parties cake the principles of public life and probity versus disgruntlement with the direction of the government. There's been a lot of complaints about the amount of tax rises, the amount of public spending, various bits of sort of nanny statism, which we will come on to in the third section of today's podcast, which is about um, smoking. Um, but, you know, which, how do you weigh these factors? Well, I think, it, as you say, the fact that this isn't an organised uh, an organized group uh, suggests that everyone has their own reason. I think some uh, MPs will be moved by high principle. Some will be moved by just local factors in their own constituency, both in the south. Some will be facing threats from the Lib Dems. In the north, some will be facing threats from Labour. Um, and I think it will have just been a slow trickle of letters coming in for all different reasons. Um, well, I mean, do you think it's sort of naked self-interest? If you think about, especially when we think about the proportion of the vote, which is just the payroll vote, it's about, what, mm. 160, 170 MPs? So you only need 180. So almost his whole total's already there if you just include people whose jobs somewhat depend on him being prime minister? Uh, yes, and I think from both conversations that I've had um, and from perhaps being slightly cynical about the motives of some on the government payroll. Um, it's not even the case that the entirety of the government payroll would have necessarily um, uh, voted for the Prime Minister, even with what they might have tweeted during the day. Um, so, uh, yes, I think, as, as, as Alice is right to say, it's, it's a variety of different reasons why um, people are trying to get rid of the Prime Minister. Um, I think you've seen on the cover of, say, the Daily Mail a couple of days ago, saying this is a sort of Remainer coup. Um, it's clearly not. Um, because there are there are plenty of MPs who were never really sold on on Boris Johnson for both personal reasons and for Brexit related reasons, I and mean, even for policy reasons. But heaven forbid such a thing should ever um, actually enter into political debate. Um, but the fact that one of the most prominent opposite, uh, opponents of the Prime Minister is, is Steve Baker, you know, former chairman not of the a ERG, noted Remainer. I no, think. exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not famous for his love for the European Union. Um, it's just that there is, as you say, a variety of different reasons why MPs. Um, want to get rid of him. And as I say, the fact that, um, as, I, as I said, from, from, from personal conversation, but also from what we can kind of get from their public comments, is there may have been MPs even on the government payroll who voted against him. Yeah. And there is, of course, just naked um, ambition. But the difference between this and I would say, for example, the vote against get Theresa May in 2018, um, is that was very much on failures of her Brexit policy. The problem yeah. with that, of course, is that there are people on the Remainee wing and the second referendum wing of the party who wanted to get rid of her so they could have a second referendum and prevent her from leaving the European Union. And then there was the most obvious opponents to her in 2018, which were Steve Baker and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who wanted to either take us out without a deal or completely scrap a deal um, and start again, which is what actually put off a lot of MPs for, for voting to get rid of her, even if they thought she should go um, in 2018 because they were so scared of uh, Rees-Mogg and Baker. They clung to nurse for fear of something worse. Um, the problem now, I think, that the plotters um, and also indeed supporters of the Prime Minister have uh, is that this uh, vote was very much a referendum on the Prime Minister personally. Um, and Boris Johnson has been in public life long enough now that um, lots of people have very fixed views on Boris Johnson. Uh, but also you're saying post-party gates and as the government slips behind the polls, etc., there are Tory MPs who are willing to be bolder or to indeed change their mind on the Prime Minister simply because they think he's going to lose them their seats. 
Um, and in that sense, um, I, I think another vote, if it were to come, um, or future plotting or future sort of uh, threatened coups um, would all be a consequence of the Prime Minister's own personal um, performance, however much MPs might be frustrated um, in public and in private by the policies the government has pursued. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. Well, that leads us extremely neatly onto the second section of our episode today, which is to do with the speech that Boris Johnson gave on Thursday, which is coincidentally when we record this podcast. Um, Alice, you were watching this speech, and the centerpiece of it was about housing, but it was really a kind of across-the-board reboot. I'm slightly losing track of the number of reboots this government has done, to be honest. And partly that's because of COVID and stuff, but I feel like we've had quite a few, like, and now we're going to get the engines of growth going, guys. You know. Yeah, I feel like this was Boris's speech to sort of try and reunite his party and also represent himself to the country as a kind of competent prime minister. And I would call his approach to, to making this speech kind of cubist, or as he might say, Picassoid, in that it was a seemingly random collection of kind of policies and angles and historical reference. Uh, the key difference being, though, that it didn't really add up to a cohesive whole. It took him about 25 minutes to get to an announcement, um, which is essentially that low earners can use benefits to pay for housing. Um, and we can talk about the merits of right to buy, which I think we would probably all agree at this table is a very positive thing, and encouraging homeownership is a sound conservative principle. But I think the problem with this idea is that it turns that, that very popular idea of, of the right to buy into a far less popular proposal, which is giving people on benefits advantages that those in work, obviously caveat, but many people on benefits are in work, don't have. Um, and I also think that it doesn't really dispel the old myths about right to buy. I and mean, people like yeah. to claim, claim that this, the problem with it was that it led to a collapse in social housing. But that simply isn't true. 
you know, we have the fourth highest social housing stop stock in Europe. Um, the only difference really is that it's owned by housing associations, not councils. Um, and Will, perhaps you can speak to this a bit. I mean, party members being perhaps the most Thatcher idolising constituency in the country, do you think they'll welcome this or, or, or not? Um, well, yes, you're, you're right to say that uh, party members um, will enjoy anything that uh, uh, reeks or is sort of vaguely reminiscent, at least, of uh, Mrs Thatcher. And it's one of the reasons that explains why Liz Truss led in our poll of who was a uh, uh, Conservative Party member, sort of favourite cabinet mem uh, member for much the last year, um, was simply because of her ongoing efforts to uh, ape the Iron Lady, um, both in dress code and in occasional public comment. Um, uh, and tank photos. And tank yeah. photos, yes, very much so. Um, yes, I think yeah, as you know, somebody whose family members um, bought their, their council house through rights by, I have an instinctive um, adoration of this policy. Um, but as you say, I think the, the climate has very much changed from the, the early 80s. Remember, it sort of peaked in about 82, 83, the actual rate at which people bought their council houses. And it's never actually gone away. It has continued through to the present day, but just at a much lower rate. And of course, now, as you say, we have a, still have a very large social housing stock. Um, and I think the problem is, is we don't construct at anything like the rate that we used to. I mean, there are plenty of people um, nowadays, my age and slightly older, who would like to, um, who are currently renting, who would like to um, buy a house, but would be pretty much as happy with a council house of the sort of kind that their grandparents had, so that they're unable to get now. Um, and I think the Prime Minister's speech today, sort of zooming out for a second, uh, it, it touched on lots of areas. Um, only, I think, Boris Johnson can get in frequent references to the war in Ukraine into a speech that was nominally on housing policy. Um, but I think if you're a Tory MP um, who the Prime Minister has told in the last few days um, that you're going to get tax cuts, you're going to get reduced spending, um, and that you're going to get a sort of prioritisation of growth, uh, and you genuinely believe that the government is going to deliver that in any huge way, um, then great, I have a bridge to sell you. Um, the problem that the government faces is not only an extraordinarily difficult um, fiscal climate, but um, as you pointed out, John, um, there's, there's been frequent reboots of this government before. We are on the third number 10 team in three years. And at the moment, it feels we very much have an administration that is living telegraph front page to telegraph front page. Um, and is actually struggling to deliver any sort of coherence or, or long-term thinking. And I think especially since the Vote Leave team left in late 2020, that has been largely lacking. And the ability to actually deliver tax cuts or to actually deliver housing policy relies on both winning over Tory MPs um, to making relatively difficult decisions, um, but also uh, relies upon the fiscal and economic climate that we will be seeing in the coming months, neither of which, um, from uh, what we've seen this week and what we've seen the last few months, looks like it's something that Number 10 will be able to do anytime soon. Yeah, I think one of the things that's striking about this whole discourse, especially about tax cuts, there's been a lot of like, if Boris wants to revive his fortunes, he needs to cut taxes. But having kind of, I kind of cut my teeth in as a journalist in the coalition years, when all the talk was about spending cuts, and that just never, it just doesn't seem to be on the agenda today. No, even the most sort of economically right wing conservative MPs, they'll call for tax cuts, but they rarely say we need to get rid of this, that or the other, do they? Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you were being charitable, you could say that the cost of borrowing is extremely low and we, uh, you know, pandemic was a once in a hundred years event and you had to spend to get through it. What I think is more the problem is that having done that during the pandemic, having said we'll do whatever it takes, it's quite hard to sort of wean the public back off this idea that the state can fix every problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think once you've been paying someone's wages for several months everything you do is then set against that um, benchmark. I think on the actual 
housing policy. I, th I mean, at the risk of sounding, you know, repeating a refrain we've uh, gone through many times on this podcast, I feel like we're talking about things that deal often with more with the symptoms, like the obsession with social housing in this country is largely because the market works so poorly. So one of the things in the CPS re released a report today, Thursday, called Right to Own, which has, it's not exactly the same as what Boris Johnson announced, but it has a lot of the same, it's in the same sort of area. Um, and one of the things it points out, which I think is interesting, is that even though it's true social housing stock fell in the 80s, the waiting list for social housing went down as well because the rest of the market was actually working pro properly. It, it's as though, I feel like sometimes, especially with left-wingers, but even with some Tories, you get this idea that social housing is a sort of inherently good thing by its nature rather than just a way of housing people. If you look at Germany, for example, the country we love to try and ape, they have a much lower um, percentage of social housing. Like Alice said, we've got the fourth highest stock in Europe. And the corollary of having the fourth highest social housing stock is that we have the fifth lowest home ownership. If we were still in the EU, 22 of the other member states have higher home ownership than us. Um, it's slightly sort of tinkering at the edges versus the main thing. Are we actually, do, I mean, Will, do you think we're going to get anything more on the big ticket issue of building in places that, frankly, local people don't want you to build? Uh, no, I don't think we will, um, because the government pledged in its uh, white paper in the autumn of 2020 um, that it was going to go for the most radical housing policy um, since oh, uh, the Second that. World yeah. War. Um, yes, and then as soon as um, various Tory MPs um, kicked up a fuss um, and then they lost the by-election in Jeshua and Amisham, um, Robert Jenrick was soon out and replaced by Michael Gove um, with, I believe, the sort of priorities of being a minister for making this problem go away while making it seem as much as possible that we're actually doing something. Um, that not only, not only meant that we got this sort of 340-page uh, history essay that was the Leveling Art White Paper, uh, but we've now got, as you say, a... a policy that seems to be um, vague tinkering and a day's worth of headlines um, rather than actually any sort of substantial contribution to dealing with the fundamental problem, which is our lack of house building. And as you say, and I think one of the other things that you have to see as a straw in the wind um, is that two of the leading MP opponents, both sort of intellectually and within Parliament, um, of, of the government's housing bill back in 2020 uh, were Andrew Griffiths and Neil O'Brien, um, both of you are now leading the government's policy agenda when it comes to delivering on housing. Um, and I think until Conservative MPs really genuinely and not just in terms of nice speeches they might make in the House of Commons or in their constituencies, etc., wake up to the fact that if the Tory party doesn't deliver a huge number of houses uh, relatively soon, then in 20 to 30 years, um, you're going to have created a generation who are so isolated from the fundamental facts of life that make one Conservative, such as home ownership, um, that the party is going to be fundamentally doomed. Yeah, I think that sometimes conservatives or people, you know, supporters of conservatives can luxuriate in this idea that people will just vote Tory after a certain age. But that it's kind of applies only to kind of one electoral cohort who all became homeowners at that time. If it doesn't, I don't see any kind of iron rule that people are suddenly going to become more more Toryish, particularly given the kind of cultural polarization we have now, where being a Tory is sort of it's so, it's so I, I feel like it's a lot more tribal now than it was, say, 20 years ago in terms of who you vote for and who you are as a person. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Will's absolutely right to say that uh, home ownership is one of the biggest indicators of voting Conservative. And I think it's worth reflecting on how intractable this problem of building houses is. Remember, there was this uh, proposal by the Duchy of Cornwall to build a development in Faversham. It was, you know, it was going to be beautifully designed. It was the Prince of Wales. They were engaging with the community. Uh, it was, you know, everything that policymakers say a housing development should be sympathetic, came with public services. And there was still, it still faced tremendous amount of local opposition. It does seem like it's turning into a sort of generational war. Yeah, I remember that. I remember looking at that, that development thinking, if not here, where? You know, because it was like not a particularly, we've come to, I keep using the word fetishize on this podcast, but fetishize anything with a bit of grass on it. Just like really scrubby, almost unused, vaguely arable land. It's now hailed as this kind of priceless commodity. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I think you just, it just needs someone with, at the risk of doing a Thatcherite revivalist thing again, just who is, prepared to just slightly bulldoze through that, that level of opposition and just say, look, we, we need to do this regardless. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm a child of Metroland, having been born in Watford, grew up in Croxley, went to school in Moor Park, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand entirely um, the appeal of suburbia and large and 1930-style uh, housing estates. Um, and I wish we built far more of them far more quickly. Um, but yes, I've always thought on this, you need to do what Churchill did with uh, Macmillan in sort of 1951 and say, go and build houses by hook or by crook. And of course, in those days, a large portion of that was social housing. But we found that the and building of social housing also encouraged sort of private development, etc. as well. Um, and I think Macmillan ended up building some around 400 to 450,000 450, a year. Um, and I think very much it's going to be, you have to bypass all of the MPs. You have to bypass all of those with sort of localist agendas, etc. And all the people who start babbling on about street votes, etc., and you just need to have um, an edict from on high um, and a housing czar empowered to simply say, we are going to build houses yeah. and we're going to build them here, here and here. Unfortunately, of course, that's largely incompatible democracy, which is not a very nice situation to be in. I should say I quite like street votes as a policy, but only within a very constrained housing system. Like lots of these policies, it's like, yeah, it's fine within this crap system that we have where we basically ration land and make it basically de facto illegal to build in certain places. I mean, let's be honest, it's not going to result in many houses. Well, exactly. It's quite well, that's, fast. That's the point. It's a fast, it's, yeah. heavy way of building yeah. more housing. It, it's, yeah, as you say, it's, it's, I think it's, it, it has its obvious um, joys from sort of scrutinian outlook where it, it, it squares the circle of the fact that people don't want to see houses built, but they're happy to see houses built if they're very beautiful. So therefore give local people the opportunity to ensure the houses built um, are beautiful and in keeping, etc. Mm. Um, but I think the problem with that is, is that, as you say, um, these things take time. I imagine it will be far more bureaucratic than its exponents actually make out. And I don't think it's going to actually do the mass house building, the large scale house building that we really um, require. Um, it's not like we're going to be carpeting the country with various new installations of no. Richmond Park or Bath anytime soon, which is perhaps, I think, what some of creatures of Brains would want. I think that some, an element of that, I will, this is my last bit on, on street votes because it's not really the focus, but an element of that whole policy got slightly lost, which is it's not just about voting on whether your neighbour's extension. It's like if a developer wants to come in, knock a load of houses down and build loads of stuff, then you get a, a big portion of that uplift. So it makes it financially attractive to people. I, I would wager that most homeowners care far more about uh, you know the bottom line than they do about the aesthetic quality of the, the house down the road. Anyway, we could, and I have down the years, bang on about housing until <laughs> um, the uh, cows come home. I want to pivot now, though, to another... This is sort of vaguely in keeping with the previous section in that it's about 
whether or not this government has a kind of classically conservative approach to some of the big issues of the day, I think there's a lot of sort of dissent on that. One of these that really gets my goat is to do with public health and the kind of incessant nannying and upping of sin taxes. Uh, this is not a unique phenomenon to, to Boris Johnson by any means, although he has declared a kind of crusade on obesity, which seems to have stemmed from his own battles with cheese and chorizo or whatever it is he likes to eat at, at three in the morning. Um, the latest incarnation of this is a review into smoke-free 2030. This is the Khan review. Uh, it's not Sadiq Khan, who was um, on the airwaves not that long ago talking about decriminalising cannabis. Um, it's a guy called Javed Khan, who used to be the um, chief executive of Bernardo's, the charity. Um, I'm not entirely sure why he was signed up to do a review about smoking, but it's worth just having a look at some of the ideas that this report includes. So we originally, it was originally floated that it might involve raising the age of smoking to 21. The actual report has a sort of age escalator where it's going to be, if it even enacted, it would raise the age of, uh, sort of, what do I say, the legal age for smoking by one year, every year, until we get to a point where literally no one in the country can buy cigarettes. So in about sort of 60 years' time, you're going to get sort of, I don't know, 70-year-olds tapping on the shoulder of a 71-year-old asking them to get them some fags. Um, but that, I mean, that's only the, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, he wants to make cigarettes green and put health warnings on individual cigarettes. Um, he wants to ban films which show people using tobacco um, from being broadcast before 9pm and have warnings. So we can have like cigarette trigger warnings, apparently. Um, and apparently also, coming back to housing, he wants people who live in social housing to be banned from smoking in their own home. Um, I mean, the, I'm, I'm quite confident that none of this will ever actually make it onto the statute books because it's so bonkers. A bit like the Dimbleby, Henry Dimbleby food review, which is about 200 pages long. But what I want to explore is, um, Alice, I mean, you've been around Tory politics for a while. Uh, you've worked for an MP and stuff. Where does this impulse emanate from? I mean, it's not just Boris, is it? We've had this direction of policy has been coming from successive government. Yeah, when I was working in Parliament, that's when we first introduced the sugary drinks levy. And the problem with that policy was that it never actually raised the amount of money it was supposed to, which was supposed to go to school sports, because drinks companies reformulated and made them less sugary. And then the government declared that that was a victory because drinks were less sugary. Um, I don't know where this instinct comes from, but a colleague of ours had a very astute analysis, I thought. Um, and she said that, you know, because the idea of social conservatism has moved away from kind of religion and the family. We can't really talk about that stuff anymore. We start talking about health. Um, and anything that protects the NHS is now somehow the socially conservative thing to do. Um, and, and I thought that was quite a compelling kind of description of the direction of travel. Yeah, I, I see it. I, I agree with that. Um, I think that's quite an interesting framing. Of, you could make it even more kind of boiled down and just say that NHSism is now the predominant political creed of basically our entire political yeah. class look and and covid was the apogee of that so just anything to the fact the slogan was protect our nhs it, it's been sanctified to an extent that you can kind of justify almost anything on the basis that it either costs the nhs money or somehow impedes its work in some way yeah and by the same token you demonize people who are doing things that are bad for their own health be it 
people who are obese yeah. or smokers or drinkers. I mean, it's it's not by any means unique to the Tories. I'm pretty sure New Labour were quite hot on this sort of thing as well. I mean, they banned smoking in pubs in the first place. I mean, Will, where, where do you what do you put this down? You've sort of you know all the different sort of strands of conservatism. Do you think this has any lineage in? Yeah, I think I think I wouldn't so much describe it as social conservative because, as you say, it's it's born out of the NHS worship, which is now um, I think a totem of our public life, and I think that's more a sort of left liberal um, sort of screed, and it is necessarily a, a, a right wing one. Though I think Tory MPs um, out of the uh, uh, wish to hold their own seats are willing to sort of play along to it when they have to. Um, but yeah, so, so I think I think it's a sort of neo puritanism, frankly, and I think it's especially a, a generation who's. Um, parents often smoked who grew up therefore disliking it um, have therefore taken in you know the last 20 years or so to try and stamp it out of, of public life and I, I always find whenever these ideas are floated um, for example I, a year ago I was I was still back as a student in, in Oxford and uh, Oxford's uh, new council then had tried to sort of launch a war on smoking and tried to ban it in all public places um, and take the sort of most hardline um, approach to it possible um, but even then, I think you've got to say about a sixth of as many people smoke now as did even about, I think, 40, 50 years ago. Um, it's dying out of its own accord um, as a habit. And I think this policy has already been proposed in um, New Zealand. I'm loath to try and sort of re- uh, repeat just into our turn and any sort of element of, of public life. Um, but I don't think its proponents have wholly thought it through by taking it to be such a hard line um, approach and to make smoking seem like the ap- absolute sort of apogee of, of evil. Um, it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to smoking, um, in, at least in, in my lifetime or in, or in living memory, because how are you going to make smoking cool again for teenagers, <laughs> yeah. um, but make it the thing that the government has devoted itself um, to stamping out? And I think at the same time, you also see in, in the last couple of decades as well, um, and especially in the last few years, um, the usage of, of marijuana and the smoking of cannabis has become much more normalised um, and much more widespread. Um, but especially also um, vaping, for example, I think has in- increased amongst young people by about 50% in the last couple of years, um, based on some figures I saw a couple of days ago. Um, and, and after I left university, I briefly worked um, as a teacher. Um, and nowadays, it's not dealing with you know boys and girls smoking behind the bike sheds, which is the problem. It's uh, boys and girls vaping in the toilets. Um, so I suggest that whatever happens and however quickly you try to um, ban smoking, people will find something else that they can do. Of course, vaping is um, better for you um, than, than smoking is, but the actual urge um, will never quite go away. And I worry that the people coming up with these policies don't necessarily understand the mindset of those for whom they might affect. There's also a tendency we discussed, your colleague um, Henry Hill wrote a piece for us a while ago about how for the sort of nanny state brigade, there will always be some new demon to slay. So once we're done with smoking, it'll be vaping. You know that'll happen. The tobacco industry is now basically in a kind of race against time to come up with new products and because the, the campaigns are still on the old one. Um, because they'll say, oh, well, you know, vaping has nicotine or it probably increases your risk of throat cancer a bit or something like that. At no point, what strikes me about this is at no point does the debate really, outside a few some smallish publications, come down to the kind of essentials of the relationship between the state and citizens and that very conservative thing of individual responsibility. Yeah, uh, so Christopher Snowden wrote a good article for us uh, this week on on this subject and saying, you know, this isn't about raising smoking age, this isn't about uh, regulating smoking, this is about outright prohibition. He's quite explicit about that in this yeah, report well, as well. And yeah, the report, it is, yeah, it doesn't make any bones about it, it's, you know, by a certain age, no one will be able to smoke. 
Um, and, and that's really, I think we should be having a debate about that. Should people in a free society be able to buy regulated products, whether they're bad for them or not? Yeah, because there's a whole slew of different products and consumables that can do harm. Fine, smoking, or the report says like it's the only manufactured product that will kill X number of people. It's like, well, you could say the same about whiskey or you know, cars or however many things. And this, this sort of brings me back to the, I just said NHSism was the kind of abiding creed of the political class, but you could also say it's a safetyism. So we've reached such a high standard of living and such a long average life expectancy that now anything that's deemed to create any sort of risk is, is in Henry's phrase, a demon to slay. Yeah, and I would just say from a sort of perhaps personal anecdote, this stuff can be really counterproductive. So I smoked for about 15 years uh, and then I switched to vaping and that made it extremely easy to quit. Now there's all these efforts to regulate vaping just like it was smoking. Well, yet that might actually prevent more people like me being able to easily quit both. Yes, so um, I think the sort of reference to safetyism is is uh, a timely one because, as you say, I think we've we've re- reached a state now um, where, especially those um, in public health authorities and in government more widely, um, don't want to ever see anybody die of anything ever. Um, which I think was one of the things that was most apparent to me about um, our two-year experiment with lockdowns and the like. Um, which, when of course people realised that the average age um, of people dying from COVID was actually older than the average a- age of which people die anyway. Um, we'd reach the states as a society where even those who are very elderly, um, who are very old, we don't want to see die. Um, how are we going? How can we apply that principle to the um, rest of society? And I think, as as you say, we're dealing with an aging um, population. We're dealing with a pa- uh, population that, uh, indeed, a world uh, where you now have more people who are morbidly obese um, than you know, um, extremely thin and the like. So I, I think we, it's a conversation that people need to have is that are we actually trying to pre- prevent any person from ever being unhealthy at any point, which I think is impossible, um, but also, yeah, compromises the principles that actually, as somebody who is of sound mind and relatively responsible, I have I should have the rights to put what I really like into my um, body within limits. Um, and by just trying to ban something like smoking outright, we don't even have that debate. And that I find, frankly, slightly terrifying. Well, well, that peon to individual responsibility feels like a very natural place for us to end. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. And I think there's uh, plenty to get into there. We could we could have done another sort of hour or so on most of these topics. And thank you, Alice, as ever, for joining us. Thank and you. thank you all at home for listening as well. Please do tune in next week, same time on Friday morning, for the next edition of the CapEx podcast. Mm-hmm.